Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to director David Yates of Harry Potter fame about his new movie on Netflix, Pain Hustlers, a dramatisation of the dodgy pharma sales in the American opioid crisis. Susanna Fogel, who co-wrote The Great Book Smart, on her new movie Cat Person, about a weird relationship between a college student and an older man. Plus, All That Heaven Allowed, a great new documentary all about the complicated life and times of the great Rock Hudson. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well as Halloween approaches and all that kind of autumnal, wintry stuff. I've reluctantly agreed, as I trick and treat with my children next week, to wear a Hey Dougie costume. In case you're not familiar with Hey Dougie, he's a giant dog and there's a giant adult costume that, for reasons I won't bore you with, is in my possession. So I will be walking around the hometown streets dressed like a giant dog. That's true, people. That's true. Anyway, and uh, a special, I just want to say a special good luck to everybody running the Dublin Marathon. I've done a few marathons in my time. I had an absolute disaster last year where I had to stop halfway through uh, vomiting, but there you go. But that won't happen to you if you're doing the Dublin Marathon this year and hats off to you and all will be well and it's a great thing to do. So as I say, good luck to you. Now to TV and movies and this week on TV, I was watching this. Are you a TV presenter? Yeah. Oh, oh that was quite sore actually. Are you famous? Uh, well, kind of. Oh, stop hitting me, please. Famous TV presenter. In my kitchen. So, do you really not know who I am? No. What other TV shows have you presented? Uh, well, I mean, I, well t- t- technically, okay, I, I came from radio. So you're not actually a TV presenter? Well, I mean, you know, I guest presented things. I've been a panellist on other shows. What kind of shows? <clears throat> Politics Hour. Never heard of it. Politics Today. Nope. The political notebook? See, I don't really follow politics. Oh, that's probably why you haven't heard me then. Probably because you're not really famous. Okay, but I am quite famous. You're not famous so. like Charlotte Crosby or Stacey Solomon. Who are they? That's a very funny clip of a very funny show called The Lovers, which is on Sky Atlantic. It was shown a few weeks ago, but it is still on Sky for your downloadable and streaming pleasure. I really enjoyed this. It is Johnny Flynn, the actor, and Roisin Gallagher, the Irish actress, playing a very mismatched couple. Uh, Johnny Flynn plays Seamus O'Hannigan and he is a guy who was born in Belfast, lives in the UK now, kind of self-involved, is going to become a, well he is a TV presenter but he's going to become a bigger one, hosting a politics show from Northern Ireland. Roisin Gallagher's character is a shop assistant and she's very depressed, her husband has left her, there are some things going on in her life, she's very funny and they come together and it's a will-they-won't-they they rom-com, but one with a difference because it is very, very dark at times. They don't seem to like each other very much, and yet they're inextricably drawn to each other. People could criticise the show for there's elements of, you know, perhaps not the finest detail of the situation in Northern Ireland. That notwithstanding, and it's painted in broad brush strokes, this is a very, very funny show and a very pleasingly kind of wonky rom-com uh, and gets 
pleasingly dark in places and is hilarious at times. Absolutely hilarious. We featured it on our show, Boxed on Pat Kenny, this week. Pat was howling, which is always a good sign. So The Lovers on Sky is well worth a watch. It's only six episodes. I think they're all about 30 minutes. You will laugh a lot. You will enjoy it. Trust me. Those of you who trust in me, I'm asking you to trust me one more time. You will enjoy The Lovers on Sky. Now, landing on Netflix this Friday, the 27th of October, it did get a small theatrical release, is a movie called Pain Hustlers. And it's all about the American opiate crisis. This is not a documentary. This is very much a dramatisation. We have Lisa Drake, played very well by Emily Blunt. She's a blue-collar single mum who's just lost her job. She's kind of at the end of her tether. A chance meeting in a strip club where she works with a pharmaceutical sales rep, Peter Brenner, played by Chris Evans, puts her on an upward trajectory, economically anyway. Morally, uh, it's, it's a dubious path because she's entangled in basically racketeering scheme to do with medicine she's selling, dealing with an increasingly unhinged boss, played brilliantly and hilariously by Andy Garcia, the worsening medical condition of her daughter and a growing awareness of the devastation that her company is causing forces Lisa to examine her choices. So this is kind of loosely based, uh, it's dramatised version of a small opioid company that hawked this kind of pain relief with fentanyl in it, which is highly addictive. Now, there have been a few of these stories like Dope Sick on Disney, which was also a dramatisation. This has very comedic elements in it as well. Emily Blunt is terrific in it as she comes to realise this stuff that's making her a lot of money is getting people addicted and it's deadly and it's extremely problematic. Now, it was directed, Pain Hustlers, by David Yates. He's the man who directed the last four Harry Potter films. He's big in our house. He also did the Fantastic Beast movies. And I'm delighted to be joined by David. Now, David, you know, I live in Ireland and if I get sick, I go to the doctor If I and they give me medicine. If I can't afford it. We have a system called a medical card, which will pay for that doctor visit and, and help pay for the medication. In the UK, you have the NHS, where when you get sick, it's more or less paid for, is my understanding. So, like, was one of the motivations of this that when you look across the water to the US, as, as I am, are you mystified and baffled by the way medicine works there and people can make millions by peddling this highly addictive stuff to, to doctors and to people in general? Completely. You know, as you look across that system and you start to analyze it and realize that what we take for granted is this opportunity to, you know, go into a system that genuinely takes care of us, isn't interested in the bottom line at all. Mm. So, and here's, here's a kind of crazy system. And the pharma, you know, the pharma system we looked at was a very small, modest part of that huge pharma landscape. Yeah. Since the company were a sort of a minnow, if you like, compared to the big the big boys. Mm-hmm. And yet they were still raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. And by just effectively bribing quite vulnerable, needy doctors who are a bit lonely, going through a divorce, might have had a gambling or a drug addiction, and going in there and sort of gaming the system. Yeah. And of course, the people who are getting hurt uh, are just are patients. So mm-hmm. it kind of felt, to me, it was like incomprehensible that you should set a system up like that when its primary objective should be, let's take care of people, make them better. Because people for a nation, let's face it, 
their 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 capital. You know, you've got to keep people well. You've mm. got to keep them out of hospital. You've got to keep them productive. You've got to keep them, you know, cohesive. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you're just filling them full of these fentanyl products, you're just you're just damaging the whole system. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. So yeah. Make a few bucks. So um, that was definitely part of the appeal for me. And also, you know, I'd made these movies that were, you know, fantasy based for a number of years, which I loved and I love fantasy. And here was a sort of real world contemporary story. I could go on the street. I could pan my camera across and film everything without having to put a green screen anywhere. And it was, <laughs> that was another appeal. And is it, you know, a fi- were you riding a fine line in this when when you were making the movie? Because you it it it's very fast paced and entertaining and humorous. So you 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 know you're telling a very watchable story, but you're also trying to be and you are, but sympathetic to what's an opioid crisis and people have died from this. So was that a fine line you were walking? Exactly, it's a tightrope walk. Yeah. So we're very conscious. So we we said right from the outset as we developed the script. We want people to be lured into the story and entertained by the story and then realize towards the end that these issues are very serious. Because I think if I'd seen a program on the telly, a documentary, for example, about the opioid crisis, and you're really sort of, you know, however beautifully made it is and, you know, however elegantly made how many people come to that naturally when they've got thousands thousands of hours of different things that they can watch mm-hmm. so we felt let's make something that that can just give people a ride for 2 hours but still get the message across so it's a bit of a trojan horse you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a kind of we we cast it up with Emily and with Chris and with Catherine O'Hara and Andy Garcia to sort of make it as appealing to as many people as possible. But then we want them to come in and sort of realize that this epidemic is serious and it's costing lives. And in, in, you know, as part of our, as part, part of our sort of care of telling the story with some respect, we spoke to some families who'd lost people and we said, this is what we're doing. We spoke to a really helpful charity who deal, um, deal with the opioid crisis and we shared the script with them and we said mm. please read it and mm-hmm. then i i showed the same charity the film an early cut of the film and the final cut of the film and said please tell me if there's any point in here where we get overly insensitive or it might offend people who are victims of this tragedy mm-hmm. uh, because if they've lost people please let us know because the last thing we want to do is make something that offends people yeah. And we, we were given good guidance and we 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 walk that tightrope to make a film that we hope is entertaining but also carries a message of how crazy the epidemic is and how wrong it is that it can be allowed to take mm. place. And and Andy Garcia, like, you know, I thought he was inspired casting. He's 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 older now, and I saw him recently in a TV show, Modern Love, and I thought he was great in it. And as he's aged, he's he's his age suits him in this. Not every actor grows old gracefully. He's terrific in this as this eccentric, albeit morally dubious guy in charge of this opiate company. D- did you always want him? For sure. He was, um, the character is, is on paper, is kind of nuts. 
And yeah. so Andy, when he came to the floor, the first day of filming, in fact, he was so spontaneous. And he, he would give me over five takes or six takes, incredibly diverse versions of that human being, some mm -hmm. of which were off the scale, crazy, and some <laughs> of which were very grounded and emotional. And it was just very entertaining watching him kind of take the same scene and play it in profoundly different ways to the point where everyone, not just me watching the monitor, but my co-producer, Lawrence Gray, and actually half the room were just looking at the screen, jaw aghast, thinking, what's he doing now? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he would, and actually, you know, the other thing about Andy he is he's a, he's a mature actor, but my God, he's a good looking man. Yeah. And my sister who lives in Plymouth, you know, when I said, she said, who's in, your, who's in the film you're making, David? And I said, Emily, oh, she's nice. Uh, Chris Evans, oh, yeah, he's great. Uh, Andy Garcia, Andy Garcia. <laughs> now we're talking. A sex object for all yeah. these slightly older women. Wow. And she was so excited that um, Andy Garcia was going to be in the movie. And he's huge in Latin America. And, yeah. uh, and, he, and also just when we were filming, he was delightful. He would sit with me at the end of... We'd finish with him for the day and we'd move on to some other scenes and he wouldn't go away. He'd sit with me, watch the monitor with me. We'd talk about the scene that he wasn't in. <laughs> we'd sort of talk about movies. We'd talk yeah. about Sen. We'd talk about life. You know, he'd, he'd bring his nephew to work, who's an aspiring filmmaker. So, David, would you mind if my nephew watched? And I said, of course he can watch. He's a commercials filmmaker. And we would talk movies while we were making a movie. It was wow. Yeah. yeah. Now, our time is running out, so I don't have time to tell you about how big Harry Potter is in our house. And only last week, my daughter watched Order of the Phoenix and is moving on to the next one this week. And I also just want to double check something. I'm an Everton fan and I'm aware that you're from Merseyside. Is the internet to be believed? And are you Theo Walcott's? uncle by marriage because he did play briefly for Everton. I am indeed Theo Walcott's uncle. Yeah, Theo is um, our lovely nephew. Yeah. Yes. I became an Arsenal fan. I used to support Liverpool by the way. I'm really oh. sorry. <laughs> when Theo signed for Arsenal, I was right in there. I love, you know, and he's retired now. He's now doing, you know, he's kind of uh, punting for Sky and yeah. yeah. Okay, well I would end the interview by saying Come on, Liverpool, but but I can't possibly do that. But anyway, lovely to talk to you, David, and continued success. You too, mate. Nice to meet you. You got one week. One week to what? Invent a doctor. Invent a doctor? What does that mean? Get a doctor to prescribe your drug. Just one script. And if I don't? Then you're fired. Great. So, zero job security. It's commissions that get you into paradise. You know what we bill on a full-dose script? What? 40 grand. A year? A month. You're saying I can commission 48 grand a year on one patient? Or half a mil on 10. Is that real? It's up to you. You eat what you kill. It's a long odds lottery ticket buried under a thousand rejections. And you gotta have the grit and the balls to reach down and scratch it. A clip there from Pain Hustlers. And you heard me talking to its director, David Yates, about all sorts of things. Everton, of course, and Harry Potter, but, but largely about Pain Hustlers, which is on Netflix this Friday, the 27th of October. Up next, director Susanna Fogel on her great new movie about a very strange date called Cat Person.
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now there is a great movie opening this weekend called Cat Person. Now Cat Person was a, a short story published in the New Yorker magazine that focused on a 20-year-old college student, Margot, who began a text relationship with an older man, Robert. And ultimately the story is about power dynamics kind of that grey area around consent and how women often find themselves in situations where they don't feel safe. Now, this has been turned into a movie, uh, Cat Person, starring Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun, who was cousin Greg in Succession. And Amelia Jones plays this 20-year-old, much like the story, who begins a relationship with this guy she meets in a movie theatre. And I don't want to say too much about it. They have a strange meeting and she falls for him. But then it's really unclear who he is. And she dreams up a lot of things in her head about who he is. It's an intriguing movie that kind of starts as a quirky rom-com and then goes somewhere else. Now, it was directed by Susanna Fogel, who co-wrote Booksmart, which is one of the greatest films of recent times, which is in my top 10 of the last 10 years. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it tonight. It is fantastic. Anyway, I spoke to Susanna earlier in the week about Cat Person. I have been married a while. You might wonder why I'm telling you that, because I, I suppose, came of age... And not that I'm that old, but we had mobile phones and all. But it seems that, you know, romance was was less lived on phones or certainly dating apps and things like that. But And I watched this with my wife. That's why I mention it. But I was thinking, despite the modernity of this story that you're telling and telling really well, there is something elemental about it as well, about a man or a woman not knowing how much is actually being revealed, that in a way this could take place in the court of Louis Fourteenth or something like that. But but maybe not. How, how do you see it in terms of it being an elemental story or a very modern one? Um, I mean, I think you said it beautifully. It's both. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people dwell on the fact that phones are a factor in, in their love story. But to me, they're, they're the culturally specific detail that sets it in the present, but they're not the underpinning of the story and they're not psychologically what's going on in the narrative. They're just kind of like the means by which the characters are repeating a pattern that is age old. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's really, I mean, I think if we're looking at, you know, what those age old patterns are between men and women that this story is shining a light on. It's, it's women being um, sort of like raised and conditioned to placate men. And part of that is, is, is feeling it's probably coming from a primal fear of the men being sort of bigger or stronger and just wanting to protect yourself on a, on a purely um, sort of, base psychic level but but also i think that we are really cultured to to be the object to be desired to be like the softer fairer sex i think that is a thing that is like messaging that is pervasive and and also the notion that we are not supposed to inflame or like offend, offend a male ego is something yeah. that is also like a thing you know there's like the emasculating woman is a trope that we're supposed to avoid the the it, there's just many many traps that have been like vilified in every sort of medium uh, of different ways to be the, a wrong woman so there is a sense of like a little bit of a needing to walk on eggshells as a woman to like get the appropriate response from a man and i think that seems to be pretty timeless um and i think that 
And I think that now there's a pushback against that a, a bit with women saying, well, we can be whatever, but it's also more complicated than that too, because women still have their own ideas about romance. And sometimes those ideas include men being very masculine and very forceful with them. There's like the, the tradition of like bodice ripping romances. And mm-hmm. those are not, those are not the same narratives that are constantly emphasizing consent. They're like different. So it's also women, women have their own complex ideas about desire. So all of that is true with or without cell phones. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and just the idea of like, I think the idea of male vulnerability too, is like a thing that isn't focused on as much, but it's a, it's also a thing that exists that is real. So yeah, all of that is true. And then it's sort of, the only way forward is really communication and connection and true intimacy. But then a barrier to that is in this case, like phones, texting, this like illusion of closeness and illusion of having a lot of data about a person, but Mm -hmm. but there's data. And then there's like a feeling. Mm -hmm. And those are two really different things as these characters learn, you know? Yeah. Just on that, you know, because it's fascinating that the tone of the movie, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's very funny at times. And then possibly it gets darker given the subject matter. But as I mentioned, I watched it with my wife and the second film I ever saw in the cinema was The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and my wife started laughing during that scene when when Margot and Robert go to the cinema because I am one of those people, as happy as I am to be in the cinema with my wife, I really don't want to talk during yeah, yeah. the movie. And she was like, that's <laughs> like you. And I was, ho- I was hoping the analogy ended there, but we were howling <laughs> laughing watching it. But like, was was that... I, I, was that part of your remit in making this movie that, you know, you wanted it to be humorous as well as very serious because you ride the line very well in it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Michelle really did a beautiful job of setting that forth in her script. And, and you know, my background has a lot of comedy in it as a writer and director. So I sure. think that, that we were on the same page about that. Um, I think that there have been a lot of very serious, there's a tendency that people have to tell stories that are about serious subject matter in a very self-serious way. Yeah. And that's not, I don't, to me, to me, I think this, if you can kind of appeal to people's sense of humor, sense of irony, sense of humanity, as you're, that, that is actually the way to cut deeper with the dramatic things you're doing too. Um, and make people invest because I think there's something that feels a little, it can feel a little homeworky or luxury if you're telling an important story or an important story, no quotation marks, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a little bit like serious people taking themselves seriously in a serious situation is one type of movie. Mm-hmm. But then there's movies about people that have personalities like you, me and our friends who are like, sometimes they're using humor as a defense. Sometimes the way that they metabolize a serious situation is by joking about it because that's what they do or they don't yeah. know serious or their analysis of analysis of a serious thing contains humor because that's just how you move through the world today. Like, yeah, if you can have a little of that, you can, it it does two things. Like one, it makes you feel like this could happen to you and it's not, it it brings you like into the world of the characters. I think more, if you're like, Oh yeah, they talk and act like me and my friends, I'm not being presented with like a lesson. Mm. Um, And also I think it, it kind of like, lowers your defenses so that then when there is drama, you're like, oh God, I wasn't expecting that. Like I, my, my defenses were down and that sort of hit harder. Um, mm. So I really like playing with tone in that way. It's, it's a challenge, but it's, um, it's fun. And it's also one of the privileges of making a movie out of a short story because there's certain things in Kristen's story that 
perfectly observed, but the tone of reading her story, like when you're reading her story, you're on, you're, you're feeling tense. You're not necessarily feeling like set up for a laugh, mm-hmm. but then there's certain things about translating it to the screen where like, I get to have visual jokes in my choices. Like what are the, yeah. things, what are the things in Robert's bedroom that are just visually going to turn her off in this horrible way? <laughs> like, See, I'm, I'm laughing thinking <laughs> of a picture in his bedroom. <laughs> when you shoot, but like, you know, when you shoot a sweaty McDonald's cup on a nightstand, it's just a funny shot. Like everybody's <laughs> laughing at the camera because they're like, oh my God, that is just so what it is. Mm-hmm. So there's just moments of humor that come from the different medium too, that I think are like worth putting in a movie that has serious underpinnings. Yeah. And there is, uh, and again, just one doesn't want to give spoilers, but there's a sex scene in it that's very involved and very interesting. And it's all sorts of things. And at one point during it, and again, to go back to my wife, she was shouting something at the screen. And and that's all I'll say. So it was was a very evocative (laughs) and well put together. But, you know, there's all this thing about you hear actors talking about like sex scenes are the most unsexy things you will ever do in cinema because it's take after take and you're showing too much of this and they're horrible to film. But like, that's a big part of this film. Was that a laborious thing to get right? Um, You know, this sex scene, it because it's so extensive, I don't want to give spoilers, but basically... No, I know. It, it, it's, it's a scene that required a lot of planning because of, yeah. how, because of how uncomfortable the viewing experience is and was going to be by design. Mm-hmm. We had to plan every aspect of it in this very granular way so that by the time we got to the set, there wasn't anything like left to chance. It was very mm-hmm. like procedural. Um, having said that, it was my priority to make it feel like it wasn't you know traumatic or uncomfortable for the actors shooting it, even if we want the audience to feel discomfort. Um, so I think the, the beauty of this story is that everyone wants to share their experiences, yell at the screen, yell at each other, talk to each other about it. And that was the experience of the crew. So the crew was every day on the set, something would happen and the crew would, would share a story from their own life. And it started to feel like this, um, like this, this sort of communal storytelling thing we were doing, even though Nick and Amelia were the ones on camera, everyone's talking at the at the lunch table about things that have been said to them and encounters and like we kind of felt like the purpose was bigger than us so it Mm. compared to other sex scenes I've directed it had a sort of a greater sense of this is going to resonate with people and we're all doing this together as a group Mm. and I think there was something like warm and cozy about that feeling that doesn't exist in other sex scenes where you're kind of just like it's it's it is awkward you know I mean it's just always awkward to be simulating that in a large group of people yeah, at, yeah. For, at, at work you know like that's a weird thing <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, it certainly is it's I don't know is, but... I don't know who thinks that that's not weird but but yeah <laughs> this this was a this felt less weird because of everybody's most sex scenes like the crew is kind of pretending that they're not filming a sex scene because they're yeah. like this is so awkward this experience was like everyone was really connected to the story so everyone was like invested in in it in a in a way that felt supportive I think Interesting. Listen, our, our time is coming near an end, but I, the reason why I said yes to the interview before I'd seen the movie was because I absolutely adored Booksmart and oh, I talk about it you. often on the show. And, you know, I was going to say, 
it's it's a cult classic, but it seems to me it's far too popular to be deemed a cult classic. <laughs> but were you surprised by the, maybe you weren't, you know, maybe it was a tale you were always planning on telling, but were you surprised by the life that film has had and still continues to have? Uh, yes, in the sense that, I mean, yes and no. It, I always believed that that film would hit people because I believed it was like, people want stories about, funny and emotional people and you know it's it's like those stories always work whether it's you know i mean super bad is timeless also and we just had yeah. a female movie that did that um and so i believe that people wanted and obviously that was like a big part of me pushing for that movie to get made was saying this is what people want but i was surprised that like somebody listened and then that actually I, I i like was hoping for this outcome because i believed that this is the kind of thing people want and need more yeah. of. but yeah. i but i was i was pleasantly surprised that it seemed to have such an incredible life you know and the the finally the in that movie the day i think it's the first day of the movie that they realize the girls they thought were wasting their lives you know, partying and all that kind of stuff had actually gotten into decent colleges and they're like devastated. Yeah. In a way. Well, it's such a great, I, I don't think I've ever seen that on the screen before. Like what? I've wasted the last six years. Like was, was that something close to home in your own life? Like, did you have a moment of why didn't I party more in school? You know, I did. I, I mean, I don't think I ever had a moment of, of, um, thinking about partying in school because I was those girls. So and so through it didn't occur to me until I had gotten to college that I could probably have like taken my foot off the gas. But okay. you know, that particular scene was not written by me. So I cannot take credit okay. for that one. Fair enough. Um, uh, so, so no, that was, so, so that was not my experience and it was not my scene. However, <laughs> I loved it. So we'll, we'll, yeah. Yeah, well, well, I loved it too. And I also loved uh, Cat Person. So continued success in whatever you do from here on out. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it. Why did you shut the door? I didn't. It, it shut on its own. Doors don't just shut. No, I, I guess this one did. It must have slipped from the thing that was holding it. I think it's locked. Or I did it on purpose because I'm actually a werewolf. <laughs> Good idea for a series of the fourplex werewolf movies. A clip there from Cat Person, which is in cinemas this Friday, the 27th of October. And you heard me talking there to Susanna Fogel the director of Cat Purse. Really, really interesting watch. I enjoyed it immensely. Up next, a fascinating new documentary all about Rock Hudson called All That Heaven Allowed. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, is an intimate portrait of Rock Hudson, who was one of Hollywood's most celebrated leading men of the 1950s and 60s and an icon of the Hollywood Golden Age, whose diagnosis and eventual death from AIDS in 1995 shocked the world and I guess 
change the narrative all around AIDS to a certain extent. The film examines not only Hudson's cinematic and cultural legacy, which is huge because it includes sweeping melodramas like All That Heaven Allows, Giant, starring opposite Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean, and blockbuster comedies with Doris Day like Pillow Talk and Lover Come Back, eventually becoming the highest paid actor in TV in 1970s, in the 1970s with Macmillan and wife, and he would eventually show up in Dynasty. But the movie also takes a rare and sometimes heartbreaking look at his private life through interviews with close friends and former lovers, as Rock Hudson was very much in the closet in terms of the public perception of him. It's released on October the 23rd on digital platforms. All That Heaven Allowed was directed by celebrated documentary maker Stephen Kayak, who previously gave us Scott Walker, 30th Century Man, Sid and Judy, and Stones in Exile. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Stephen. Stephen, hi, how are you? Hello, doing well, thank you. Stephen, you know, I, I really enjoyed the film and I was struck by one thing. You know, Rock Hudson was born, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times because he comes of age in terms of the cinema in the late 40s and early 50s. And this is very much post-World War II. And because of how he looked... He was perfect for that macho, soldier-like American beefcake that it seemed cinema audiences wanted. Uh, yeah, it's true. He was a, a towering hunk of farm boy who, uh, you know, had aspirations to become a big movie star. Um, no training in the theater uh, whatsoever. Just traded on his physique, his good looks, and his tenacity. And yeah, he he fit the bill uh, almost better than anybody at the time. And where did that acting ability come from then? Was he, was he, because as you say, he wasn't schooled at all in Stanislausi or any of that stuff. Was he just a natural talent? Well, I mean, he learned, he learned his craft uh, on the job, you know. Uh, he started out in, you know, as a background player, he was signed to a contract and they train you and, give you the voice lessons, the horseback riding lessons. They, you know, sent him to the gym, gave him elocution, all of it. I mean, the studios, obviously, as we know, were these factories that, you know, minted stars and some people just didn't cut it. He really just stuck with it. And, you know, we do know there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, commerce, sexual commerce, physical commerce that was traded um, within the system to advance people's careers. And he was no different, of course. Um, but he was a natural. He was a, he was a great natural. It took him a while. It took him a great while to get his groove on. But when he clicked, and generally with a really great director, mm. uh, they really bring out the best in him. Yeah, and I was thinking of people like Douglas Sirk uh, mm-hmm. and the like. Tell me, you mentioned the casting couch. Uh, enter a man called Henry Wilson, uh, an agent who seems kind of straight out of 101 Central Casting of Hollywood Agents. Would you just give our listeners just a, a brief sense of Henry Wilson, the type of fellow he was? Well, you know, he was uh, a notorious talent agent. Um, learned his craft in casting for uh, David O. Selznick. Uh, and then went into business as a power agent. And, you know, he specialized in very hunky, handsome young men fresh off the boat in a way or the farm, you know, off the hay truck, uh, groomed them, gave them, you know, clothes to wear, uh, created crazy names for them. 
in the hopes of creating movie stars, you know, and he was very frank about it. He traded sex for access. Um, not the most attractive gentleman, but, um, you know, he, he had his, he was a, he was a power player and it was, you know, it was decades before me too. I mean, this was a rampant, uh, problem in Hollywood and a lot of, you know, society at the time. Henry was no different, maybe one of the more, uh, sleazy of the sort, but, uh, and we, we see that rock Hudson really is kind of his greatest creation of the time. Yeah, yeah. And just back to some of the movies. And, and what I really like about the film is you clearly had to go deep uh, and you must have watched every uh, Rock Hudson movie a couple of times over because you, you find some brilliant clips. And what you do uh, is you show kind of, you know, the house of mirrors or the, or the double irony. I don't know what you call it of this gay man who was pretending to be very straight for the purposes of Hollywood, but he's in all these movies where he's playing an effeminate man, or he's pretending to be an effeminate man to bed a woman. And in particular pillow talk opposite Doris day, like was, is there any sense do you have that he was winking at us? He was having the last laugh or was it just an accident of the movies he was offered where so many times he was playing this guy pretending to be effeminate or gay? Well, you know, that really hits its stride with the Doris Day comedies. I can't believe they decided on that uh, as a plot device, but it really worked. Um, and no one was the wiser. I mean, it's that kind of hiding in plain sight thing, right? I mean, if he's yeah. making fun of being gay in a blockbuster comedy, you know, one of the biggest grossing films of its time, how could he possibly really be a gay guy? I, I don't know how that worked. And there's no way he was not 100% aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he he had to be <laughs> on the joke. Yeah. And they... But they, they keep kind of playing it out to a point where I think he even got kind of tired of it. Um, I don't know if it was humiliating or just artistically not satisfying anymore. Um, yeah. Once he gets to a film like A Very Special Favor with Leslie Caron, which is a really unfortunate film. Um, but it has some of the more broad gags, you know, the hiding in the closet kind of gag. It's ridiculous. He pops out of a closet at one point. <laughs> so, like, what are we saying here? Um, yeah. he, had to be, he had to be in on the joke. He had to be in on the joke, yeah. And and talking of tiring of maybe some of those, I had, and I'm supposedly, you know, a film expert, but to my shame, I'd never heard of this movie from 1966, it was, called Seconds, where it, it's almost like a horror movie of sorts, uh, where he, he he's going to get plastic surgery. He's playing this character to begin his life again. And I see that it's all so in the Library of Congress is a culturally significant movie. Was 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 he disappointed by the reception that got because I mentioned Stanislausi and all that stuff earlier, but it seemed with a movie like Seconds, he wanted to try and spread his dramatic wings a bit. Oh, 100%. I mean, he tried to do that over and over again and yeah. was just stymied by either bad direction or miscasting. This seemingly was the perfect storm of a great role, a great director, John Frankenheimer, obviously coming off yeah. of some classics um, himself. Uh, it's it, it. Frankenheimer even said it went from failure to cult classic without ever being a success. I mean, it just <laughs> it bombed because you know people. He even said at one point he he, he had preferred 
to cast Robert Mitchum. You know what I mean? A yeah. serious actor. Um, cause rock really was kind of considered a bit of a square, you know, he wasn't mm. cool. And Frankenheimer was cool. His movie is cool. Black and white noir psychological thriller about, yeah, secret organization who can fake your death and remake you into a completely new person, give you a new life. And this, schlubby old guy wakes up and he's rock Hudson. you know which yeah. in and of itself is kind of ludicrous um yeah. but uh he really pushed himself to a limit i mean we're well past pillow talk at this point i mean it's yeah. harrowing really um you know borderline nervous breakdowns on camera and stomping in vats of grapes naked with um his co-star and yeah it's it's a horror show it's a great film but again very layered very much about the constructed manufactured life and the destruction and havoc that can wreak on one's, you know, uh, life and that there's really no going back in any comfortable way. It's, uh, it's chilling. Um, and again, it's so layered and so pointed. Uh, you can't imagine that they didn't think, aha, this is perfect for rock Hudson. Yeah. And, yeah, and I'm he falls I'm apart. He really just falls apart. It's terrifying. Mm. Yeah, as a, yeah, I'm going to have to watch that. Tell me this, you know, when we talk about you know a man living in a closeted life uh, because he had to, uh, and 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 it's it's questionable when if ever that ended in Hollywood, you know, uh, and if it still goes on today, I, I, I sense it does that people can oh, come out. Of course, out, but, it does. Yeah, yeah, but particularly in his time. But at the same time. He didn't, and I don't want to be tabloidy about this, but he didn't feel shame. I mean, he he enjoyed his his sex life, and 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 at one point, and I don't know how you got it, but it's a fascinating phone call where someone rings him up and basically suggests he's going to bring over this pretty young man, and Rock Hudson or Rock Hudson is saying, "Well, tell me about the equipment," and they get into inches, and <laughs> like I was laughing, but I mean, you know, he enjoyed his fame in that regard like he wasn't ashamed of being gay it seems well that's the thing you know i mean there's so many ways to unpack all this stuff i mean it was just life i mean not just for him but for queer people of the 60s 50s 60s and whatnot i mean the double life was part of life you Mm. sort of had to live uh the best way you could to protect yourself i mean you know Gay people were considered unapprehended felons in most states. You know, their your very life was illegal. Um, so that tells you right there you're 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 living a life of you know of caution. Um, but at the same time, people live their lives. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean, we have great records and histories of vibrant, full, kinky sex lives going back well beyond <laughs> the fifties, forties, thirties. You know, it's like it happened. Um, for someone that famous, you know, he also, on the flip side, is protected by his privilege, his wealth. He's a yeah. strapping, famous white man who's got the whole studio behind him to keep, you know, to protect him because he's making them a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't like a, uh, you know, he wasn't uh, like a Monty Clift. He wasn't a tortured closet case, you know. Um, yeah. One felt that you know, being in the closet, it was just a natural state being in the closet for him. And it wasn't something he really gave a second thought to. I really think he was more tortured by not, you know, being more celebrated as an actor and everything else was just, you know, 
was just life as he lived it. And when we get then to the kind of final chapter or, or chapters of his life, it's fascinating. He has this huge success in the 70s uh, with, with Macmillan and Wife, which I'd I, I kind of forgotten about, but it was a huge TV show. But he is diagnosed with AIDS. And, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but I was 10 and I remember hearing about Rock Hudson having died of AIDS. The first two people I remember were Rock Hudson and then Freddie Mercury five years later, I think it was. But it does seem that his contracting AIDS and his eventual death from it was definitely a paradigm shift. Uh, It's kind of a before and after. Not that it got dramatically better, but it certainly changed significantly after Rock Hudson died of AIDS. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we even have someone in the film, uh, Bill Misenheimer from the LA AIDS Project, say, you know, he didn't change. He didn't save anybody. Everybody still died. It was a horrible, horrible decade plus, you know. Um, But he at least gave people hope that now we could all start talking about this like grownups. And it just crashed the conversation into the mainstream where it had not been before. Yeah. Um, The enormous amount of stigma around it and the, 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 the backlash against the gay community was real and violent and um, really horrible. But then again, you know, the, the Reagan administration wouldn't really take it on until 89 or something. I mean, it's, it's absolutely monstrous. But, you know, so it was a, it was a definitely a, a, a significant moment. Um, and there is no doubt that there was AIDS before Rock Hudson and after Rock Hudson. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it helped in, in a lot, you know, elevating the conversation, which, you know, we can say that over and over again, but at the time, it really was a meaningful moment. It was very important uh, yeah. to progress things, especially fundraising and research, which all just elevated exponentially after his announcement. I mean, there's no denying that. And it helped nationally and almost more importantly in local communities like in L.A., where you had groups like L.A. AIDS Project trying to raise money to help people on the ground. And it, it was extremely significant. Yeah, and tell me this, the, the, one of the deeply affecting moments in the movie, and again, you find brilliant audio and, and also film and, and, and the scenes where you show he was in Dynasty and he's with Linda Evans and he's giving her this kiss and he's cognizant of the fact that he has AIDS and he's physically starting to deteriorate. He says at one point, that was the worst day of my life had to kiss Linda Evans and he's almost worried that he's given her AIDS. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just appallingly tragic in lots of ways. Did you have to look hard to get that film and the excerpts from his letters around that time? No, no, no. Those weren't his letters. It was actually, uh, we're quoting uh, the diaries of George Nader, who was one of his best friends from Uh, before they were even famous. George uh, was an actor himself and his long-term partner, Mark Miller ends up being Rock's secretary. I mean, they were close, close friends all throughout his life. And George kept these very detailed diaries. And so, okay. especially starting with the diagnosis, uh, it was, it's almost like a daily record of what, because they were living at the house, taking care of things for Rock, you know, so it was kind of like a daily record of what was happening. And of course, the whole dynasty thing was uh, extremely fraught. Uh, mm. And yeah, they're sitting there watching it and thinking, my God, we just watched him give... Linda Evans, a lethal injection. You know what I mean? It's, it's harrowing yeah. to read. Yeah. These are then, you know, and, and he says, rock comes home and is like, this was the worst day of my life. We tried everything. I kept my mouth shut. So did she. And then she's in a panic because the director's going, why, 
isn't he kissing you right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. This is Rock Hudson, damn it. You know, we know he can really lay into one. And she thinks, was it me? Am I doing something wrong? Is why won't he kiss me properly? This where the scene has to be done over and over. And then, of course, they have to do it over and over again. And he he won't give it his all. He keeps trying to to peck her on the cheek or yeah. avoid it as much as he can. And they, it's I can't even imagine because at yeah. the time, eighty five, we didn't know anything, right? Yeah, I know. You, people thought you could get it from kissing or a handshake or a toilet yeah. seat. I mean, it was ridiculous, and there wasn't proper there wasn't proper. Uh, you know, even the testing was was a bit sketchy. It wasn't as, you know, we just don't have the tools we have today. So it was yeah. kind of like if people remember early days of COVID, you know, is it in yeah. the air? Is it on a surface? Yeah. Is it ever everyone around you can, you know, give it to you? It was just total paranoia and panic. That, like so many other moments in his life, are captured wonder wonderfully in your film, Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, which will be on digital platforms from the 23rd of October. I notice the movie he was in co- was called All That Heaven Allows. Your documentary is called All That Heaven Allowed. And there is a Bruce Springsteen song on Tunnel of Love called All That Heaven Will Allow. So oh. I can't I can't believe I got all the titles right. Just in closing, can I quickly just ask you? Uh, your previous movie, uh, Scott Walker, 30th Century Man, I'm just wondering, he's now since passed, God rest him, but Scott Walker, for people who don't know, was this fascinating guy who was in this, the Walker Brothers, and then ended Trio. up being this, you know, I don't know, avant-garde musician who wanted to kind of have anti-matter music. It was just a fascinating life and career. I presume, you know, the answer's in the question. You were drawn to that like most people would be who are interested in making documentaries about interesting musicians. I presume he was just a fascinating guy to interview and document his life. Uh, he was my hero. I mean, that's that's the real passion project of my life. I mean, I've made a lot of films about a lot of different bands and musicians and subjects, but uh, he's he's the North Star. He still is sort of like, you know, he ra- he he set a bar artistically, I think, for a mm. lot for for us uh, in the way he lived his life and the way he created his art and music, and it, it just can't be matched. He's the eternal, you know. He's amazing. Yeah. Well, listen, Rock Hudson was amazing as well. It was lovely to talk to you. That's Stephen Kayak, the director of Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed. Thanks a million. You bet. Stephen Kayak there talking to me about his documentary, Rock Hudson, All That Heaven Allowed, which is now available on all digital platforms. A fascinating story. That is it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. I will just remind you that this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend and indeed the bank holiday and trick-or-treating fun and all that stuff and I will talk to you all next week.